Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I've known Rahm Emanuel since he was a 22-year-old kid. Thinking back to those days, he was relentlessly driven, pugnacious, very competent. That's been 35 years. Uh, Since then, he's been uh, a member of Congress and the leadership of Congress, the White House Chief of Staff and the Mayor of Chicago. And today... He's relentlessly driven, pugnacious, and competent. Plain spoken and blunt as ever, he's seen a lot of history, been a part of a lot of history, and has a few thoughts for our current president. And because we're dealing with some timely issues, we're posting this the day after this conversation, and it will run uh, for the next 10 days. We'll be back on August 28th. Good to be with you, my, my old buddy, Ram Emanuel. You know, everybody knows the Emanuel boys. You, your brother, Ari, who's uh, uh, the uh, mogul, Hollywood mogul. Your, yeah, your I had brother, a le- Zeke. I had a lengthy conversation today with Ari for 12 seconds. <laughs> your brother, Zeke, who is a uh, world-class uh, bioethicist. And uh, you're all... I would say high-strung uh, people, and it makes one wonder what the hell happened in your home we, that caused you to be this way. Our Wheaties box was mistreated; <laughs> it had extra radiation treatment. Uh, you know, I I don't. First of all, um, to normalize it, if I can, I would say, you know, my you know, my dad was an immigrant from Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's. I think being steeped in an immigrant culture, not only my father, but also my grandfather on my mother's side. I think that sense that you had to make something of your life here in the United States because a lot of people never made it here from our families. I think I've told you this story, and I've said it before, but, you know, in our family room, there was a picture of my grandmother, her two, my two great aunts, and their purse that carried the passports. And on either side of that was black and white photos on my mother's side of the family and my father's side of the family, of relatives who never made it to America. And there was my parents were very clear. I mean, it was not subtle. These people never made it. You're here. You have an obligation. So that drives you crazy. Now, um, your mother, uh, uh, your dad was a pediatrician. Mm-hmm. And your mother has a rich history that I, I think a lot of people movement. don't know. In the yeah. civil rights movement. Talk about that. I, I, so there was that's one piece. The other thing I would say is uh, my parents were adamant about family dinners, and you had to come prepared, ready to argue. And that could also make you a little crazy. I mean, at five years old, having pl- current event discussions is a little much. Yeah, we'll get back. Uh, I want to get back to that. But mother, I don't want to lose the thread of, of your mind. We'll come back uh, to my the mother, crazy achiever thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my mother, uh, in late fifties, early sixties, uh, is, uh, running core in Chicago or at the leadership at core, 
Congress on Racial Equality, mm-hmm. did the open housing um, integration in Chicago and did also the uh, integration of Chicago beaches, which were once uh, segregated. And um, she was steeped uh, early before it became vogue in uh, the civil rights movement. And, and not just, uh, and I'm not saying other people weren't also steeped in it, but before it became in the latter half of the 60s, but in the late 50s and 60s, intimately involved in it and in pushing um, uh, equality um, uh, for all the races and uh, was a big voice and used to take us off to uh, marches all the time. Um, and that was her, um, and I say this sometimes because there's one anecdote I'll give. My grandfather's were, and my grandmother are over for Sabbath dinner. And my grandfather, who was a big giant, you would look at me, but he was 6'5", a, a boxer. And so they were having an argument in 1967 about, Henry, about Wallace. I mean, to the point that— Henry we, Wallace. Or George well, I, Wallace. George I, I, Wallace. Well, no. It was Henry Wallace. It was 20 years later. My grandfather was furious that Henry Wallace broke from the Democratic Party. My mother was supporting Henry Wallace's break from the Party. But then 20 <laughs> years later, there's, there's in a, in still a arguing about yeah, it, huh? And it's still unresolved whether <laughs> Henry Wallace was right to break. But that was our home. And my mother's history uh, was very much about our responsibility um, for those who are uh, either less privileged or for those who are locked out from America to make sure that— uh, uh, especially on the civil rights, that we had a responsibility uh, uh, and the bond that existed between the Jewish community and Jewish leadership and the black community. So your mother was a civil rights mm-hmm. uh, activist. Your mm-hmm. father is a Jewish immigrant. In that context, what was your reaction to what happened in uh, Charlottesville and uh, the president's reaction to it? This is in the line of things, David. I never thought of the president of the United States would ever, ever cross. The idea that uh, white supremacists, neo-Nazis and KKK members think they have a friend in the White House. I mean, I'm not a person that's usually left speechless, but I'm really close. I, I've never, and it's, it's frightening to me, they think they have a friend in the White House. Something that is a boundary, regardless of how conservatives quote right and right right wing you are. Ne- even George Bush, George Bush disassociated himself from David Duke when David Duke said, "I'm going to become a Republican." This is unacceptable. It is an unacceptable expression of our values. And I got to say, on it, I'm going to say this, and I say this as Ram Israel Emanuel. I want to know what the Jewish members of his administration are thinking. What do you? At what point does your common decency and values get crossed. I always said to everybody that worked with me in the White House, there may be a point where a president makes a decision, you decided the job is not worth your values. And I'm sorry, if you're Jewish in the history that uh, associated with Nazis, and you and this is going on where neo-Nazis find a comfort, and I think what's happening, there's other issues as it relates to what's going on in Charlottesville that's happening in the country today that you could dissect politically but a president of the united states has a bully pulpit that bully pulpit is to speak to our american values and he failed and he failed the bully pulpit he failed us and he failed the job of being a president of the united states the truth of the matter is when he came out and condemned the racial bigotry espoused by those in charlottesville 
that was written for him. Yeah. What he said the other day in the in the uh, no, I said that on TV it was like it looked like a hostage video. <laughs> well, I sometimes joke it looked like the American soldier in North yeah, Korea's yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, prisons, yeah. you know, blinking a lot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what he said the other day is what he felt. The other thing is what somebody else the words they put to him. Those are his own words, and I'm just I'm sorry. It is at every level fundamentally wrong, and we can't. I don't want to whitewash history. We've had presidents who have had different uh, views as it relates to American Indians, different views as it relates to African Americans, slavery, etc. But we're in a different time, a more modern time. We have, as a journey as a country, we were in a different place. He has turned his back and turned, trying to turn the clock back on America to a point it had walked away from. And uh, it's wrong at every level. Let me get back to your, your story. Yeah. So the uh, the in terms of the crazy achiever yeah. thing, there was this uh, there was this expectation that you guys all felt had to get good grades, had to had to perform. If you did not uh, perform at the best, you were a uh, you know the Yiddish word shanda, you were an embarrassment to the family, and so it was inculcated from the days we were being weaned, that this is what is expected of you, and you have a responsibility, and it's expected. And if you did not do it, you uh, were uh, an embarrassment to the family of what was expected of you. And, I mean, all of us were also encouraged to go do whatever we want. We all picked different fields, but you had a responsibility that you couldn't be good at it. You had to be great at it. The uh, the field you picked originally was not <laughs> this. It was <laughs> dance. How, how did that all happen? Well, uh, my first of all, I I was playing soccer. I always, by the way, said that's where you learned how to kick people in the groin. But I, that's a different question. You know, that's really was gratuitous. You know, <laughs> we were getting along so in, well, so early in the podcast for <laughs> yeah. that. We were. I was beginning to like you again, David. Uh, <laughs> no, um, I was playing soccer, and I wanted uh, after the soccer season, which ends, you know, depending how far you go in states, uh, ended uh, November late fall, and I wanted to improve my soccer game for the spring, and my mother recommended ballet. Now, my mother used to be a dancer. You look at me, I'm 5'8", if I stretch on my tippy toes. She is 5'11". When she was dancing ballet, you were under the Balanchine era, which was not that image. It's still not that image, so let me say that. I loved, ended up liking ballet, and I realized that I was going to be better at ballet than at soccer. And so I started to dance more seriously. And then when it came to college, I had a a very late in life for a dancer, but I had a chance at the Joffrey School, which I did not take. And you went, but you did go to Sarah Lawrence College, which was uh, until until recently before your arrival was like an all girls school, right? Yeah, it was all girls school. uh, And I think about three to four years before I arrived, started to allow uh, uh, men, boys. And uh, did you go there to dance? I mean, did they I, have a dance? Well, here's party? what I, I convinced my mother, who was desperate that Or did I take, you think you'd have a better chance to make the soccer team? <laughs> <laughs> no, I convinced myself I'd have a better chance of getting a date. Uh, uh, my mother, I convinced my mother I w- wanted to go to a school that had a strong dance program because I wasn't sure I wanted to commit to dance. It was a big argument. She said yes. The par- my parents pulled out of Lynn Dorm driveway, and I threw the ballet shoes against the wall. And I didn't, I dropped ballet. I graduate and I end up t- picking up ballet and dance again, dancing at the Hubbard Street here uh, and Joel Hall. And I dance all the way 
until uh, Zachariah is born when we were in the White House. When you left Sarah Lawrence, yeah. uh, you got into politics. Uh, I, my last year at Sarah Lawrence, uh, between my, uh, I pick up, I work on a campaign. I work for Common Cause. I end up picking up on working on a campaign from somebody I met there. Interrupted my senior year, so I graduate in December. It's not the normal season because I took a semester off to work on campaign. When I graduate, I work for Illinois Public Action Council here in Chicago working on utility rates, other kind of consumer issues. And that's how I start my career back here in Chicago. Now tell the world who Ron Madison is. Mm -hmm. Do we need to do this? (laughs) Tell tell everybody. How do you remember that? It's my job. Did one of these little minions around here find no, this? No, this was my. This is tucked away in my, the recesses of my own mind. But I love the story. So I, my campaign is in down in Springfield, Illinois, for David Robinson against Paul Finley, and Mike Curran, who one day becomes a state rep, no longer a state rep, says that we can't have a guy named Ram Israel Emanuel work on the campaign. Now, in remember, Central Illinois. In Central Illinois in 1980, we have to come up with a new name. We think you should be called Ron Madison, not Ron. <laughs> and I said, I said, I'm not changing my name. He said, We don't want you to change your name. Just introduce yourself as Ron Madison. And I think it lasted about 24 to 40 hours. I said, I'm out of here if this is what I got to do. But for a 48 hour period, Ron Emanuel was Ron Madison. And what about the I can't experience? believe you remember. I have not. Well, well, I think you worked with uh, David Wilhelm in that race, who David, all, became a big part of your life. For, David M. and Forrest Claypool. Yes, who's now the yes. CEO of the Chicago Public Schools. Uh, I met you in 1982 when you were working for the Illinois Public Action mm-hmm. Council. I, I often tell the story about you. <laughs> you wanted me to write a piece about the role that they played in electing mm-hmm. a, the first Democrat in 150 years or something. In, in the uh, rails back seat. In uh, Western Illinois, right, yeah. and uh, then uh, and and in order to escape from you, uh, blessedly, uh, my wife agreed to go into labor, so we go into the <laughs> hospital, and somehow you tracked me down into in the recovery room to ask when I'd be back. You know at what work. you never said about that story? What you did? You, say, you, you took the phone call. Well, I didn't know no, who no, was wait, on the no, line. No, 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 no. I get blamed. I about thought it might be a relative. I get blamed about. I never took any phone calls when my wife was in labor for three children. Because you, you know why? Because they knew enough to remove the phone. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, but but then I saw. I met you uh, again. I yeah. mean, we kept in touch, but I yeah. met you again two years later when I quit the Chicago Tribune and I went to work for Paul Simon, who was mm-hmm. a congressman running uh, for yeah. the U.S. Senate. And uh, I, I walked in. I think you were shaking down a captain of industry on the phone for. A contribution for you know, Simon when I came in. No need to comment on that. <laughs> but you were a part part field operative and yeah. part fundraiser. And and throughout your career, that was uh, as a you, you know you were very good at the fundraising piece, uh, but you also were involved in the political mm-hmm. piece. Correct. Did you prefer one or the other? You know, I I think I I see the fundraising and there's no campaign without it. It's not my desire to always do it. I don't want to do it, it's, but I'm okay. I'm obviously good at it, but it's not the what I identified. And I say that by, you know, in the 92 election for Bill Clinton for president, after I got in the fundraising all set, uh, Wilhelm and I actually agreed that I would set up the state-by-state. State. It was the first time a presidential had actual state-by-state state where we did 
for Ohio had its own TV team, its own polling team, its own manager, and its own um, direct mail team. And we did that, and I organized a team, so I did the politics then. That was always— Even as you were doing the fundraising. Yeah, but I had the fundraising kind of on automatic by Mm. then. But So I'll do it, but uh, if you— and I know it's important, and if other people won't do it, and if you believe in what you're doing, whether that's Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, or for my own campaigns, I'll do it. But the preference also is then to be involved intimately in politics. You uh, you went out to the Simon campaign to the DCCC. Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. And uh, first you were like a regional director. I, and set up the, were... I set up the political system for regional. Yeah. And I then took the Midwest position. I was the first one hired, set up the model. And took the Midwest position, and uh, that was your first taste of candidate recruitment mm-hmm. and uh, exactly development. And then two years later, you you were the political director, national right? political director, which is when the famous dead fish story <laughs> happened. You and I were both involved in this. Boy, you quickly tell that well, story first because of all, there wasn't... I, if I can't, I can't do a podcast without mm-hmm. asking you about. Sending someone a dead fish. Let me be clear. That wasn't by me. That was by Ron Madison. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. uh, so uh, we had a very important race in uh, 1988 to fill Jack Kemp's open seat. And it was not just a win if you won it. You were taking Jack Kemp, who was the darling of the Republican Party. Up in Buffalo, uh, yeah, New York. David Schwartz, uh, a pollster by the name of Alan Seacrest. Uh, we were down 30. It's a Republican seat. We had closed to uh, 12 points, if I'm not mistaken. Thanks to things. superior media by the media consultant. I can't remember the media consultant. <laughs> if anybody remembers that, uh, please do some research on that. Um, that happens, and David convinces David Schwartz convinces his spouse that if he gets within single digits, they'll take a second mortgage. We Five straight polls, we've closed the margin down. We go in the field, we're at 11, and all of a sudden we jump up to being down 20. And nothing had changed. In fact, we we had a add-on by some unknown uh, media guy that was really unbelievable on environmental policy yes. uh, on a dump. And we found out the manager went back, realized that the area they polled was a, the adjacent congressional district, not the congressional district yeah, of the it was, campaign. It was a polling era. And what? Yes. And the, so. I got angry. We got the. By the time we then got the media back up, we went dark for three days. About ten days out. Once we got back up on the air, the race was out of control, out of our reach, and we lost by I think five six, five, five point, points. six points. Yeah. And had we not gone off, I think we all convinced ourselves we would have either it would have been much closer. So, not. as a young man, as a young not man, as mature as you are now, I was so angry. I've, uh, one of my uh, staff members, by the name of Joe Sinsheimer, found a service that you could send dead fish. So, not only did I send a dead fish, I then sent it with a note: "Thanks for an awful year." Love Rahm Emanuel. And then it was signed by others, let me say that. <laughs> it, he was on vacation after the election, so it was left on his desk for two <laughs> weeks. When he came back from vacation, he opened the box of a dead fish that had been left in the mm-hmm. uh, de- office. I, I'm a little amazed. So you achieved the, the desired effect. He did, um, in, in its full aroma. <laughs> and then he wrote me an infamous two-page, single-page note. The campaign, the magazine campaign elections wrote, and it became an infamous story of my mature, my growth and maturity. <laughs> <laughs> so you came back to Chicago, yeah. and you were involved in the Rich Daily uh, campaign, mm-hmm. the first campaign. The city was at, at on uh, yes uh, tinder hooks and very divided. Uh, it was called then, as people uh, Beirut, you know, Beirut, Beirut on, on the, the lake. lake. 
And uh, I think, I want to say this for on behalf, I mean, all people, when you're done, people will say good things, bad things. Uh, people don't really fully uh, appreciate what Rich did from the tenure of 1989 to the time he left then in healing those wounds. And he should get credit for that. It's a big accomplishment and not easy. There was a, a, a couple of decades between that experience and when you came back as mm-hmm. mayor. Did you learn stuff about the city in that campaign that was uh, useful to you later and about city politics? Well, there's always... First of all, the city is the same and different today, and it's both. I mean, it is Chicago, so there's a, as I described it then, uh, Chicago is a very big city with a small-town feeling, and I'm not the only one that says that. Our politics are very much balkanized by ethnic identity. On the other hand, you know, I mean, I'm, a, I'm clear that I'm Jewish. You can't hide it, Ram Israel Emanuel, <laughs> and yet Jews only represent 3%, but I don't think anybody would have ever thought that a Jew could become mayor of the city of Chicago. And the rough and, you know, I would say I learned a lot. I've learned in every job I've had something. I've learned a lot about the city when I was working uh, for Ma- uh, Mayor Daley's uh, campaign. And um, the way we not only wear our politics on our sleeve, but our love for our city on our city and our, and our on our sleeve and on our shoulders. And I do, but I also think, whether it's geographic identity, racial identity, or ethnic identity, or class identity, we have a very kind of uh, a set of politics identified around that, like in the way that it used to be around uh, a place of worship or a park. You uh, you went on uh, to the Clinton campaign. We mentioned yeah. 92. That, yeah. the, the aforementioned David Wilhelm of the Ron Madison days uh-huh. uh, managed the daily campaign, and then he was appointed campaign manager uh, for Bill Clinton and immediately hired you uh, to come down there. That was kind of a crazy time when you arrived in Little Rock. Well, first of all, my dad was very angry that I agreed to go down to, what are you doing? This guy is a 3%. What are you doing? This is, this is insane. I've never heard something so stupid. Uh, that's the kind of thing. Um, nobody's heard of this guy. Uh, so... Um, we went down, and the truth is, people forget this, David. Bill Clinton at that point was considered a candidate running. First of all, he's running in 92. In 88, he gave a horrendous speech at the convention. Yes. People thought he was running maybe for being a vice president on the Cuomo ticket or the Bradley ticket. He was not running to be the president of the United States. No. And I went down to work on a campaign that the guy was at 3%. And then once Bradley, Rockefeller, and Cuomo all decided not to run, Songus was... And Harkin well. were considered the frontrunners. Right. Bill Clinton was the outsider candidate with zero, uh, le- slightly above zero chance to be the nominee. And when I went down there, which was early October 91, at that point they were thinking of him as vice presidential material. And I remember when we were flying from Memphis to Nashville, he and I, that we got the word on the uh, tarmac that Cuomo was going to announce. Not, not going to run. Yeah. What did you see in Clinton uh, then that you, that made you believe this guy can go from 3%? Well, there's two things. Uh, first is my exposure to him is when I'm political director of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, the chairman was Burl Anthony, a congressman from Arkansas, and I used to go back all the time with him. Bill Clinton was up here with Vince Lane when they were doing uh, uh, police, remember, in the CHA housing? 
and uh, I was exposed to him, and I thought Bill Clinton had a unique understanding of where the party needed to be, where the country was, and a way to communicate and meld, which I think is really, really important, policy and politics in a way that people can digest and understand and make relevant to them. And I thought he was a rare talent and somebody that I had an intellectual and a political, and I say that positively, Mm -hmm. political uh, affinity for. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back with Mayor Rahm Emanuel. And Ron Madison. Yes, and Mayor Ron Madison as well. (laughs) When you arrived... um, you went, when you arrived in Little Rock, um, you, Clinton had enormous potential, but he didn't have enormous resources, and you were able to raise a— f- he, could not, uh, he could not raise—first of all, he was a governor, and for the first three weeks before Thanksgiving— he was seen. I'm telling you, there was, it was yeah, all about was whether. And he was a governor from a relatively small state. And Very small state. Nobody had ever done this. Uh, the last Southerner was Jimmy Carter. We know how that ends. And you had all these titans, Cuomo, Bradley, etc., who were still hovering above the field at that time. And we put together a strategy and a schedule between Thanksgiving and Christmas that made Bill Clinton the uh, when it became the first primary, which was a January fundraising report. He was the front runner, and that's what established him as a guy that Four could Four million, put, right? Four million dollars? I know you're going to find this weird. 3.2 million was raised in that first period. Right, which was like an enormous amount of money at that time. That's like lunch money in a presidential <laughs> campaign. Today right? it, would be, uh, it would be seen as you know, the hors d'oeuvre part of— uh, well, yeah, But he was, needed it because— For he credibility. Hit, he, but he hit not just for credibility— but when when the early primaries yeah. took place, he had real turbulence turbulence involving well, women, turbulence involving his, uh, his non service in Vietnam, yeah. uh, and many people had sort of written him off for dead. We had a not only that fundraising, but there was a uh, before the New Hampshire primary. It was a week out, and uh, we had a fundraiser in New York. And again, the fundraiser was proved that if, whether he had the staying power, the stamina to get through the Jennifer Flowers and the draft letter. And we did this unbelievably successful event, and people then said, well, this guy may be able to kind of, and then he did the, finished second, but called himself the comeback kid in New Hampshire. In New Hampshire, but But part part was he had the resources to compete there. Yes, without a doubt. And he says it. I mean, he writes in his own book that if it wasn't for the resources, what I did, I'd have been a a has-been. And Mm -hmm. the resources became a primary, but they they gave him the resources to compete, and they became ways of measuring whether he was still viable in inside the windshire of a campaign. What is it about Bill Clinton? You know him very well. That causes him to fly close, so close to the sun. Uh, is he going to hear this podcast? No, uh, I don't. I think David. Um, he likes. Uh, there's something to the intensity and the win. If you survive, not a an election, and he does live close. To the sun. I mean, flies close to the sun. So surviving not just elections, but sort yeah. of just the challenges of all sorts, including, man, uh, you know, self-induced inflicted. crises. Yes, self-inflict, from self-inflicted to political ones to et cetera. I don't, you know, either whether he seeks them out or they seek him out, but somehow he, that's where he goes. There's and kind of Dukes of Hazard quality. I don't, you know, I. but I will say, let me flip that 
he went into terrain, which is what I was drawn to politically. I we can we're, when we say that we're thinking of obviously some of the scandals, some of the stuff yeah. that happened during. But you know, he took on things where other people wobbled in their knees and backed off. Whether you uh, on welfare reform, on trade, yes, no on, doubt. So he lived politically. Well, look, I think he's an amazing amalgam of intellect and sort of yes. animal political instincts. Uh, you know, just base political instincts, the ability to read uh, a crowd, the ability to read a person, the, 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 had, the sort of encyclopedic knowledge of the places in which he was campaigning. He had a, he had a, he had a, a depth. I always said he was one of the first. Here's one thing I always say. Very successful national candidates are uh, multilingual. Bill Clinton could go to a church, a black church, and in the afternoon be in a corporate boardroom and not miss a beat. And you need a versatility and a capacity. And to then integrate, whether it's an individual to a group, uh, to the uh, larger audience, everything you're trying to communicate and the politics and the policy at the same time. And I'm telling you, I don't think we'll see a talent like his in our lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Obama had the same ability to go from venue to venue. I noticed that's that be- when he was running for the Senate. But That's because he was, and he's successful. Yeah. The, you you were rewarded uh, <laughs> f- after the election with an appointment as political yeah. director of the White House. You flamed out pretty quickly. You were a young guy, mm-hmm. a little brash. Uh, but what, what happened from your perspective? Well, uh, that's been written about, but... Um, the first lady and I was a, I was pushed the president's agenda. I was political director. I will note that when I was political director, they won all three specials. Uh, yeah, but who's counting? But go ahead. Yeah, the second is I ran into a little conflict with the first lady, which also guides me in the rest of my life. But that said, is I ran into conflict and I Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton, mm-hmm. and I don't. I was about to be let go by uh, Mac McClarty, and I don't know where I got the chutzpah and the courage, but I said, I'm not leaving until the president of the United States tells me. And I can't imagine where I found the courage to say. And then in the end of the day, I knew that Bill Clinton would not let me go, given our relationship going back to Iowa and little and New Hampshire. And But I ran into, um, uh, as did George Stephanopoulos when he was let go and then became senior advisor. So they came up with a title called Special Projects. And yeah, and Special Projects was, was. Uh, located in the basement with no windows. <laughs> Not only no windows, a play school phone uh, <laughs> uh, that didn't dial out. Uh, <clears throat> I was given, in my first assignment, NAFTA. Yeah. <laughs> Go, yeah. And if we had 12 Democratic votes, we were supposed to pass this thing, and which yeah. we obviously did. But, uh, and that was the beginning of my return. And you worked on the crime bill as well. The crime bill, uh, the assault, uh, in, before the crime bill, people forget this. We passed the the assault. We then we worked after NAFTA, then passed the Brady Bill, and then it was in March of '93 uh, we passed the assault weapon ban by one vote in the uh, House of Representatives. And uh, I have these great pictures at home of Bill Clinton and I, where I tell him about the vote. I literally jumped in the arms of the President of the United States, and then we have this photo where he's bear hugging in at the library. And uh, then the crime bill that put a hundred thousand community police officers. Midnight you mentioned basketball. that part. The other part that's controversial that I'm sure you hear about and he's heard about and he's apologized <laughs> right. sure. for and so on went to determinate sentencing. And some of the provisions of that bill that were viewed as— Can uh, I say one thing to that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. This probably get me in trouble. Antithetical but. to social sure. justice and— Well, first of all, you got let's go backwards. 
It went down and was going to be over. The assault weapon ban was dead. The midnight basketball after school programs were dead. Everything was dead. We needed Republican votes, and Newt Gingrich was not going to let the Republican votes. You know who was key to negotiations at that time? John Kasich, the governor of Ohio. He and I sat down in the cabinet room. We designed a bill to allow uh, 12 Republicans to help us pass the rule to build the bill, and you ended up with getting the assault weapon ban, the law of the land. You ended up with midnight, what Newt Gingrich referred to as midnight basketball, mm-hmm. all the after-school programs legitimizing for the first time funding for uh, social services and af- activities for kids, and 100,000 community police officers. Did it come with other things? Yes. John Lewis and other people voted for it, and I will say if you were going to have to do what you had to do to get passed, I understand there were some things that people didn't like. But in the end, if you go back and look at the moment in time, it was either the assault weapon was dead or you worked with 12 Republicans who would be supportive. And mm-hmm. that's how, David, legislation, whether you like it or not, gets done. Now, people can look back and forget certain things, and I understand that. But – now they don't write the history about the assault weapon being dead. They said we would like to renew something that Bill Clinton put the law on the land, and there hasn't been gun control done since that time. Let me uh, return to Hillary for sure. a second. You, you mentioned you tangled with her. Yeah. Uh, and uh, she obviously played a big role in that, yeah. uh, in that administration. Uh, what did you learn about her, positive and negative, that, that, caused, that, that you think back at? now and say uh, had impact on this last election let me can I say one thing before that uh, and then when I survived because I said what I said to Mac McClarty I it goes to your first question I think one of the things I give my parents uh, credit for was to always respect authority but never accept it and it's contradictory and because you have to have respect for the office the president of the United States but I being told you're fired, I'm saying no. So you have to have the courage to challenge it while accepting its authority. Back I remember, by the way, telling you, come home, it's over. <laughs> and you're saying, essentially, you did a Blutarski thing and said, it's not over until I say it's over. That's right. You, a lot of you, a lot of my friends said, just leave. They're not loyal to you. You should leave, including you. Right. And those were, I think, friends who were looking out for me. And if yeah. I'd done how, that. How much of this was the. Emmanuel gene, this notion that Emmanuels aren't allowed to fail, that you weren't going to walk out of there. I can't there. believe you're wasting time on this, 100%. <laughs> okay. You know the Good. answer. Yeah, not, not 99, 100%. Yeah. Uh, I, the idea that I would come home having failed, I could not do that to my family. All right, talk about Hillary for a second. Rather than me, I really was enjoying We're going to get thing. back to you. <laughs> um, so I would say how much, you know, it's, not a, it's a good question. It's not a fair question in this sense. I think Hillary would tell you the Hillary uh, first lady of the first year of Clinton's administration is not the Hillary secretary of state, et cetera. There are attributes and traits that play all the way through. Positive and negative. 100% positive and negative. Yeah. Uh, very uh, driven, driven to get success, knowing uh, her brief, wanting to make change, quartering no criticism. Um, and, uh, my, when I ran into her, it was because I was actually advocating not to do with fire the travel staff. It wasn't worth. Mm-hmm. For those who, who yes. don't remember, this was about so a controversy that, yeah. within the white house that the tra- yeah, the tra- led to a political problem and a congressional investigation. Mm-hmm. And I was, I had the gumption to tell her then, uh, 
you know, you shouldn't do this and nobody else would do it. And everybody said, have Mikey go do it. So I went and did it. Um, and I thought it was a mistake. That said, she um, was wanted order. And I think that's a good thing. She was disciplined. She was focused, didn't get distracted. Um, on the other hand, uh, she, uh, now here's one thing I will say. When I got NAFTA done in the assault weapon ban, even though I was in her doghouse for a while, she says, you've earned uh, my respect and was first to say, we're going to get you a window. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but it will be painted. It won't be real. <laughs> uh, do you think that the, you've known them for th- almost yeah. 30 years now. Do you think that all of these battles and all of these problems that they've had, uh, the various investigations yeah. and so on, the pummeling by the... Uh-huh. Uh, do you think that that contributed to a sense of uh, guardedness that hurt her in this election? Uh-huh. Um, look, I mean, Hillary's... Uh, yes. Uh, the short answer is yes. You know, he, let me... I've never... I've said this before. I've never said this. Let me say... I think Bill Clinton... I want I want people to hear this. So it's not taken out of context. Is he had he engendered engendered enemies to come after him because I think they he was a Rorschach test of the '60s. Here was a guy that was a rock and roller, didn't serve in Vietnam, grew long haired, went to the East Coast universities, but was a Southerner who grew up on X side of the tracks, who knew the Bible. Um. Uh, better than those who claimed it as their mm-hmm. book. Um, and they transferred to him all the things that they hated about that period of time. And that's why he was also a generational change candidate. But she saw everything, um, and he did, as uh, ways in which you could, when your lives were like this and you were attacked insistently throughout, both personally as well as professionally, how could you not be guarded? You would be like crazy if you weren't. And do you think it hurt her? Everybody's strengths are weakness. Yeah. I think, it, you know. And, uh, and I also think uh, the, it's not an accident that some people say that retrospective, she, you know, what was the reason? I think she thought that she was supposed to do this and she needed a time in which she should have realized why she was doing it, not that it, it was expected of her. And that was missing uh, of that effort. One other thing about the Clinton years uh, that has some modern, uh, yeah. that, that has some contemporary application. They dealt with a special counsel for many of those years mm-hmm. hanging over the White House mm-hmm. uh, that ultimately led to impeachment proceedings against Bill Clinton. How debilitating uh, is that for a White House to have a special counsel? Uh, anybody who tells you it's not is a liar. It's very debilitating. On the other hand, Bill Clinton did get a lot done because of his like spirit of the campaign. The and drive. he somehow was able to compartmentalize it. Bill Clinton, um, it was, it, not somehow, he drove towards this ability to lock something on one side of the brain, focus on the other. I used to uh, call him when I was senior advisor on Sundays because he would be doing the crossword puzzle, watching March Madness, and having a phone conversation about policy and could do the crossword puzzle, know the score of the game, because somewhere in the middle of the phone call would be yelling about the score and not lose sight of what the hell we were talking about. So mm-hmm. that's how he did it, man. He had a, 
I got to. I want to. There's so much to cover that I don't want to. I have to do one thing. Yes. Otherwise, my staff will get me. Yeah. You know, I do a podcast on Chicago called Chicago Stories. Yes. Can we reverse the roles and I do an interview with you? Happy to do it. Happy to do it. Um, Because your bio is not as interesting as, but I'm joking. It's well. We, we'll, uh, we'll, you can see, answer, we'll see about that. One day you can answer can why you picked a phone call up when your wife is delivering. <laughs> okay. the, um, uh, you ran for Congress in 2002. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I just I lightly touch on okay. that. Here you were, a, a Jewish guy running in a, in a largely Eastern European Catholic yeah. district. Uh, I mean, you had and the that leg, came some up of the, the campaign. Front as well. Yes, it did. Yes. Yes, it did. I, I got to get this one thing in there because it was I did your campaign. Yeah. The most uh, valuable find and the most surprising was your Uncle Les. <laughs> Les Smolovitz, right? Who was a sergeant in the uh, Chicago Police Department? Yeah. I guess he got to lieutenant at some point. No, he was a sergeant in the 17th District, Albany Park. Yeah, in the district and had been for decades. Yes, uh, second watch, which was shocking. Yes, but you, but that became our best ad. I think it was, the, it was a it was a joke, and people were repeated to me on the campaign because you interview this cop about this guy who assault weapon ban Brady Bill, a hundred thousand cops. And he says, don't just, I forgot how it ended. But he said, I'll t- I'd tell you that even if he weren't my, my nephew. Yeah. Yeah. But how is it that your uncle, uh, your, your, your uh, mom was a brother. civil rights yeah. organizer, your dad was this Israeli pediatrician. How'd your uh, uncle find his way into the Chicago Police Department? That's what, uh, Uncle Les also had a master's in history. He wanted to be a Chicago cop. He would say, since the day, growing up, uh, I used to, and that's what he wanted to do. And he was, and this is also a district with a preponderance of police and firefighters in the Jefferson Park area, Oil Park, Edge, Brook community that I represented. And Uncle Les wanted always to be a cop. My mother um, was involved in the civil rights movement. And I, you know, and my grandfather, that's the beauty of Chicago, is he could come here with a third grade education and his kids and his grandkids could go on to better things. Um, and that was it. Now, you know what's interesting out of that? In that campaign, do you remember I had to uh, show the, uh, my birth certificate to prove I was from Chicago, not Israel? Yes. That's why I you always had empathy. Birther. That's why. That's right. I always Target. had uh, yeah. uh, admiration for what uh, both admiration and respect for what Obama had to go through because it was never asked of other people. Yeah. You, you um, uh, yeah, while you were in Congress, yeah. it didn't take long for them to come to you and say, okay, you can raise money, you know politics, you've got to run the DCCC, you've got to help us get the House back. Uh-huh. And you did in 2006. What did you do? Now the Democrats are facing the same task yeah. in 2018. W- what did you do in 2006 that has lessons for Democrats in 2016, well, you know that old, 2018? You know that uh, old saying that, Why'd you rob the bank? Because that's where the money is. I went to the districts where there was a potential to win. Like, it doesn't take a lot of brains to figure that out. But, you know, if you looked at today, we have we have all the urban districts. They have predominantly all the rural districts. Urban, and there's some suburban right. swings. So, right. That's where the gold is for us. 
So you got to go find, you got to go to the districts. You got to go find candidates that fit the district, not fit you, fit the people they're going to represent. Remember, it's a representative political system. Second, this is a we, big point because there are folks on the left who would suggest that that you need no. more ideological purity. In the, no, you don't need it. You need you need people that can espouse what they believe in and that understand what it means to be a Democrat, but they have to reflect um, the party uh, that they're going to represent, which is the people of these swing districts. Would and the recruitment piece be the most important piece? It is. No, it's a very important, but I would tell you before recruitment, one of the things that's missing for this year that didn't, we helped create, I'm doing this by memory, but 18 open seats. Right now there's only one retirement on the Republican side. They need to be using this break right now to have to force retirements. We picked up, I think, I'm doing this by memory, almost of the competitive ones. I think we went nine for ten in open seats. It was almost a third of the 30-seat win. And there's not a lot of real—that's why I'm like, don't think this is just about 2018. This is about 2018. You also have many more targets than they have today. I mean, there there are probably uh, two dozen— uh, real sure. pure targets, and they need 24 seats. To we take had, I think, when you counted at 54, almost. Uh, but so that's the thing. Recruitment is essential. Running good campaigns is essential. Having the resources to run those campaigns. What's changed today is it's less on the candidate and more on the outside groups. It's a real fundamental difference. It was then beginning. Today, it's at a different level. Um, and you got to know. Uh, you got to have candidates that reflect the districts. Can you beat somebody in a rural area? Sure. Do I think it's as likely as a suburban in a kind of like Philadelphia suburb, mm-hmm. suburban Chicago, suburban... Southern uh, California. No, not, not, it's not. Although I will say one of the most important things happening is this ruling by the court on the Texas redistricting, the ruling that's coming out of Wisconsin. That's going to change the map, and that's going to give Democrats, if not this election, over the next... Uh, Couple. Courts just ruled a, yeah. a re, uh, in Texas, and there were two two districts. Two districts. That, yeah. yeah, we're going to take another short break. We'll be back with Rahm Emanuel. I remember very clearly when Barack Obama, our mutual friend, mm-hmm. uh, was elected president in 2008. And shortly before the election, we were flying around. It was clear he was going to win. Mm-hmm. We were talking about potential chiefs of staff, and we both agreed there was only one person for that job. We needed somebody who understood the operations of a White House. We needed someone who understood Congress. We needed somebody who knew him, was uh, uh, had a relationship with him. Mm-hmm. And so it had to be you. And he said, go and feel Rahm out about this. And you said in no uncertain terms, do not have him call me to ask me this. Uh, you use language that uh, I could use on a podcast, but I'm not going to use on a podcast. Uh, why? Well, because I knew that if a president asks, who's also a friend, but a president of the United States asks you to do something, you had two answers, yes or yes, sir. And I didn't want to be in a position to have to say that because I've been to the White House. And David, you know me well enough. First of all, I was in the leadership now in the House. I'd been there only two terms. Amy and I and the kids had our lives set. You know how important that is to me. We had our rhythm of our life set, and I had a career that allowed me to balance home life with my love for politics and not have to make a choice. And I knew what a, uh, a new White House would require, and I knew what a, uh, uh, the sacrifice I would be asking of 
Amy and I, and most importantly, my kids again. And I didn't want to be in a position where I was picking a loyalty and a responsibility to the President of the United States and one that I felt I had to my family. And if, so, he, caught, so, and if he got on the phone, I didn't think I had the stamina to say no, and I didn't want to be put in that position. Which is exactly what I told him. And I said, give him a call. I think he'll do it. <laughs> Uh, and you did it. Do you, do you know how Amy now refers to you? You have a new first name. I don't want to hear. <laughs> I don't want to hear. But um, uh, talk a little bit about what we confronted, what you confronted. No, we all did. Uh, and I want to say this. I mean, I was the chief of staff, and I know the role of the chief of staff. But I think one of the things that we had great was, even through thick and thin, a culture of a team. So the best way I describe this, any one of his things that he had done, would have been worthy of another president's entire term, and he did five of them. The auto industry was collapsing. The only precedent was Chrysler. We didn't have Chrysler. We had Chrysler GM and the entire auto industry. The financial sector under the savings alone was a segment. Under President Obama was the entire financial insurance, everything in the financial sector. was on the verge of collapse. collapse. You had past recessions. This was not just a recession of the run of the mill. This was something bordering on a close to Great Depression. You had not a war. You had two wars, and they were the longest in the United States. And that is what I do by memory. And there were other things. Don't and forget health care. That was – see, I break this – You're about the problems that we – That know. was on the inbox. Right. That was not even before we got to his wish list. We had to clear out and do it in a way that allowed um, to get the economy moving, to get the auto industry – because I remember this with uh, – like yesterday – when I walked in and I was meeting with uh, President Bush and George, Josh Bolton, the president said to me, to tell, I'm going to tell the president tomorrow, let him know, that we're going to help uh, the auto industry, but enough resources, $24 billion, to last six weeks. The entire auto industry would, in four weeks after, on January 29th, by February, would be over, collapsed, and, th- and millions of uh, auto jobs in the industrial and manufacturing base of America. That was just one Item, and it was, and we had a set up. A what White what House. is it about him that allow uh, that that allowed him to succeed in 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 many of these areas? I, you know, I I think one is uh, I think Barack, uh, the president is incredibly fearless. That's number one. It's unusual in politics. Beyond fearless, to the point that. You know what I thought of it sometimes. Yeah. I thought of that for this is uh, slightly on this side of reckless. Um, and uh, he did, on those items, he didn't have an option. The stuff later in life, uh, financial services, the financial reform, health care, et cetera, those are things that he wanted to get done in what shape they got done. But the other ones you had to do. And I think the best example of that fearlessness, and it's been told before, was that meeting we had in the Roosevelt Room when it came to the auto industry, and uh, no one was for doing uh, it. If you were for doing it, you just wanted to do GM, not Chrysler. And it was $50 billion or $54 billion, and I think it was some like person way in the back of the Roosevelt Room who was the only person who agreed with the president. I think Goolsby would, would tell you. I think he was against the whole thing. And the president of the United States said, if we're in, we're in, we're in for everything. And we went in to go save the auto industry, and it was – publicly one of the most difficult things people were even in michigan yeah. i think we had yeah. people in michigan were didn't want say, to do it yeah. yes yeah. and uh it turned out to be for his own re-election re-election one of the uh, 
best political moves, but one of the most But it wasn't politically obvious risk- at that point because it easily could have gone uh, no. you, gone the you, other way. And he was, uh, and he's, you know, he understood the politics were not, uh, were not uh, great on that. Um, let, let me ask you sure. about health care. You, you, you know, there, it's, not, it's, it's no secret that you were concerned about the politics of health care, mm-hmm. and that was your job to be concerned about it. In the context of today, uh, are you surprised that the Republicans have had such a hard time unwinding no. that which you were involved in, in passing? Let, let me say this. I, wanna, I was for doing health care. I was for doing not losing so much time on it. And I do think it had a consequence that you have to measure because we also now don't have a choice of our Supreme Court nominee. They do. And there are political ramifications because he lost the House and Senate in 2010 that go forward. Um, Once you give a benefit, they're not wrong on this. It's very hard to take a benefit away. Second is once you commit yourself to certain things like pre-existing condition, it's very hard to remove a piece of the puzzle. Once there's a, pr- a principled piece of the puzzle, and, and the and that's totally embedded in the public. Oh, the pu- the public. This that's. I would uh, say for healthcare, pre-existing condition coverage is the third rail in the way Social Security is for retirement, which is you can't mess with it. What do you think about the White House as you look at it today? <laughs> I mean, how do you assess this presidency, and particularly how the White House itself is running? Well, it's not. I mean, if the stories I just read before we walked in and did this, David. I mean. That if it's true, don't know if it's true, that Kelly had no idea what the president of the United States was going to say yesterday. On he wasn't re- even supposed to take questions, apparently. On, yeah, I, look, I just, I, I said this before, so I'm a, I, it's not like I'm a genius. I'm not worried about Kelly. I'm not worried about Kelly for the staff. I'm not worried about the staff reporting to Kelly. The biggest problem Kelly was going to have was that the principal wasn't going to uh, mm-hmm. actually play by the Kelly rules. And so it's not a surprise to me. And I think this is... You have a president that cannot function within order, within a system, who cannot be disciplined to message, to ideas, to policy goals. And I think it's hard to describe this as a modern White House. It may be a postmodern White House, but it's not a modern White House. Where does it, how does it end? It's going to crash. You're watching a slow motion crash, in my view. And how does that crash manifest itself? I, look, the biggest test of it will be whether on a core issue like taxes. Healthcare was never a core Republican issue. The real question is, if they, I think they've already jettisoned tax reform for tax cuts. If they cannot see their way to this, then you have the first true example that they cannot govern. You came back... And although I think healthcare is an example of that, uh, uh, but taxes will be uh, the uh, kind of the cherry on the cake that this is if you can't get that in your republican it'd be like us not being able to deliver some form of health care you came back in 2011 to run for mayor you confronted yeah. a lot of very difficult problems deep fiscal problems yeah. problems in the education system and so on i don't need to remind you of that but um i want the the one that seems naughtiest yeah. is the juxtaposition of crime mm-hmm. and policing mm-hmm. uh, and it's still mm-hmm. naughty uh, Can I say one thing? You mm-hmm. are asking. You know, the fiscal position in Chicago today is better. Yes, uh, and recognizes better. The economy is at one of the high points, and we just last week again released another set of data points that our reading and math scores and attainment for our kids are sitting national standards. 
the crime issue and the policing issue are uh, intimately tied, and you are correct. We have made progress in the past. That's all gone. Um, They are rooted in a whole set of issues, some uh, economic, some public safety, some poverty, some cultural, some around gun control, some are criminal justice. And everybody always says, let's deal with it as a public health issue. Well, we have to look at everything then and analyze it. If Now, this is my dad as a, as a pediatrician. If we're going to look at it as a health issue, we have to look at all aspects, and we can't wall off certain aspects that are uncomfortable. Um, we are emb- embarking as a city on doing a lot of work on cleaning up the police department so it's more accountable, more professional, and more proactive and accountable to the public it serves and I would, you know and really truly embrace community policing as a operative principal philosophy rather than an office and make sure every officer knows that they're going to be held accountable on the other hand they're going to be responsible for engaging and being part of the community not just patrol it um the second piece is to uh, as it relates to gun violence is to deal with um there is a real element where if you if all you are exposed to is economic despair, a pattern of violence and drug dealing, that becomes a culture in and of itself. And you've well, got to break that up. But the but the question is why is uh why why is Chicago more subject to this than other well, first of big all, cities? We're not more subject to a, a riff. No, between police. I understand okay. that part. Uh, I but, thought that's but, what you said. But I'm talking about the violence, the, the, the rate of violence in Chicago, the rate of homicides. Well, there's other cities, David, as you know, are dealing with this now. I say this then. I mean, we were making real progress. I, I've always believed there was there is a Ferguson effect. We have a uh, history of gangs in the city that's different than other cities. And anybody that comes in and looks at it, who's a criminologist, will tell you that. We have a culture, uh, not a culture, an access to guns because of where we are geographically uh, and as a, you know. And by the Ferguson effect, you mean police yes. who, are affra- uh, fr- uh, who are hanging back because. That's true what's happening. But, you know, I just came back from the mayor's conference. You talk to all my colleagues. There's 27 out of the 35 largest cities are seeing an increase in violence. Something happened in the last 18 months. That said, it doesn't explain everything. Chicago has a, uh, uh, is unique and also similar. We have a deeper gang culture. We have a, uh, a access to gun violence, uh, to guns that's different. On the other hand, David, there is something, uh, there's another set of issues that are similar to other cities that make uh, what's happening in Chicago, while the numbers stand out, not really be different than other cities. Look at Baltimore today for, as an example, or Charlotte, that's up 70% right now. How, how uh, much uh, for the guy who uh, can't handle intimations of failure and you've been successful in a number of other areas as you point out here in the city how much sleep do you lose over this well this one uh look it's it's not about that at one level you're talking about a lot of lives here yeah i was going to say to you at one level you're thinking about how do i measure myself the i've i've handled there's not an issue from fiscal pensions education reform full school day universal kindergarten the hardest thing I do is sitting in a living room with a mother as a father and try to, and I always tell them, I just, 
I would be wrapped Nothing. around an axle, and I just, and it's the hardest. If you had lost a child. If I had lost my own child, and it's not, um, you know, and the weird thing is, for a lot of these mothers, I've made my share of visits, my share of phone calls. I'm bizarrely one of the only officials that ever calls them. And I never try to do it around press. I don't do all that. And you you know me well enough why this sits on me from my own family background in the sense of measuring whether my success. This has a, taken me to a different place uh, spiritually. It's taken me to a different place of trying to question um, human nature. And it's taken me to a different place about... Um, these individual women I've met, mothers and grandmothers, who I am in awe of their uh, power that I don't think I possess because I don't think I could be where they are. Why is the president uh, so persistently taking shots at you and sh- Chicago on this crime I don't think, issue? I don't think he's taking shots at me, he's taking Chicago, but Chicago, but by nature, that's me. I think there's a. Uh, I think the question is for him to answer. I'm be guessing, but I think there's a racial component to it. Um, uh, uh, there's, he's, he's taking shots at Philly on crime. He's taking, he's taking shot at cities. He never takes a shot at a rural part of America on an opiate crisis. If you never, so, I mean, there is a, you know, I'll take, I got challenges. I welcome their help, et cetera. But have you noticed he took on Philly, he took on Atlanta, he took on uh, New York. I, I forgot what other part of the, uh, cities he has taken on as a release to violence, but he's never questioned another area's elected leaders for failing to deal with the opiate crisis. And mainly, though, if you look at those, it is in a split screen. I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, this is my analysis, I could be totally wrong, but my view is it's interesting that he only deals with cities when it comes to violence, but he never deals with the violence around the opiate crisis that's got suburban and rural America tied in knots. The latest guy to take a shot is the Attorney General Sessions. As we sit here today, mm-hmm. he uh, uh, made a speech in Miami mm-hmm. and uh, attacked you for suing the federal government over their new um, uh, restrictions on cities that are sanctuary cities, well, funding restrictions. Yeah. Can I correct you? Mm-hmm. I never refer to us as a sanctuary city. We are a welcoming city. We welcome immigrants from all parts of the world who believe— that America is a place for them, for them, and more importantly, for their children to achieve their dream in the way it was for my grandfather. So we are a welcoming city. I do not, and I will not, change Chicago's uh, character and give up on a community that's found their home here. It would be turning me my back on our future, let alone our past. Uh, I- I, I, What's wrong? I, I get that piece. Yeah, okay. No, not, but, uh, but I'm asking you, here's what, uh, what does uh, Sessions say? Session say. Rather than acknowledging soaring murder counts or the heartbreaking stories told mm-hmm. by victims' families, Chicago's mayor, that's you, has chosen to sue the federal government, Sessions said. For the oh. sake of their city, Chicago's leaders need to recommit to policies that punish criminals instead of protecting them. They okay. need to protect their citizens and not the criminals, the implication being that right. a lot of this crime is the result of immigrants. First of all, it's not. The facts are the facts. You're allowed your own opinion. You're just not allowed your own facts. Second, our shootings are down, not by the 16%, and uh, in certain areas, much, much more. Third, uh, immigrants, as you said, do not cause the bulk of this. This is, unfortunately, uh, different communities in and of itself creating its own violence. 
For, fourth, I was one that pushed, and we passed in Springfield after 20 years, stiffer sentences for repeat violent offenders. I was the only mayor that came out and praised Governor, uh, Attorney General Sessions when he talked about using the federal U.S. attorney to go after gun crimes. Because I happen to think that's a piece of the solution. But this but, really but isn't going, about, it's about, this is, a, yes, this is, is at the core of this, because he said, well, Miami's doing it in there, and look how low their uh, crime rate is. They're making the case for this policy against so-called sanctuary cities, or welcoming cities, as you call them. Is it a... Is he's, it, he's, he's, look, it's, it's Superintendent Johnson from Chicago put out his own statement, and we've looked at it. It's immigrants, undocumented, says, are not the driving force for gun violence. It's access to guns. It's repeat offenders who are back on the streets that need to be behind bars. And it is also about economic opportunity and job creation. Now, I'm not going to talk about a private conversation I had with the sessions, but, you know, I was willing to talk about things that for after school, summer jobs, forget. He has no interest in that. And you can't solve this problem if you're not looking at all the aspects. And our status as a welcoming city actually encourages immigrants to work with police officers rather than create a wall of a breakdown in community policing. It's wrong on values, wrong on the law, and wrong on community policing. And he, they're go- and what, what do you think is driving it? I think they're playing politics with this, and that's what you know they're they're doing. And they're using today before they use cities as a way of describing violence as a characterization, which they never use around the violence associated with opiates and the drugs that are in suburban and rural communities. Second. They're using uh, the immigrant community, particularly, uh, as a way to create something that's not of us that we have to be frightened for. There's a politics to this, and they're trying to make cities that are sanctuary cities, and their data doesn't hold up. It's not factually true. I mean, the politics may be good for them, but I'm going to be clear about what we're going to do, and we're going to sue them. And it has nothing to do with fighting crime. Our suit— does protect the principle of community policing and protects our values as a welcoming city. And they are on the wrong side of the law, the wrong side of the values, and they're wrong on the uh, side of criminal justice as it relates to community policing as a principle. You've been a mayor. Yeah. You've been a White House chief of staff. You've been on the White House staff. You've been a member of Congress. You've been in public service for a long time. Uh, do you see yourself ever going back to Washington in some form or fashion? Only to pick up money for investing back in Chicago. <laughs> no, I don't. I, I think actually this is a – I know we don't have the time for this. Cities drive the economic, intellectual, and cultural energy of the world economy. A hundred cities. Chicago is one of those world-class great cities that does that. We also, in a period of time of political illegitimacy, are the last political structure that still has legitimacy by the people that call themselves either from Chicago, New York, Berlin, etc. Because the – The government is local, it's low to the ground, it influences people's lives, and they still feel like they can influence the decisions. That is not true of Washington. That is not true of London. That is not true of Paris. That is not true even of Tokyo. And today, a mayor can make a decision like universal full-day kindergarten or free community college, things that I've done, and influence. We're the only city. you got to be average. Free community college. You can make a decision, make it happen. And people feel a connection to it in a way that I think still creates not only political legitimacy, it is a major force uh, in today's uh, So this policy. is the last public job for you? Last one. And, it's, and let me say this. 
Um, I love the people of the city. I love the city. I love this job. It is, a, and I've had, as you noted, since we've gone through it, I've had some really great jobs in public life. N- none of them all combined. Senior advisor to President Clinton, Congress, leader in Congress, chief of staff, collectively measure up to being the mayor of the city of Chicago that is home uh, for my family. Well, Ron Madison, the folks in central <laughs> Illinois are really proud of what you've accomplished. It was, it was great good, being good kicked, to be with in central you. Illinois. It was great to be kicked off the soccer team and to join the ballet team in central <laughs> Illinois. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.